Revelation chapter 3, if you're ready to dive into God's word, would you say amen? Amen. Today we're going to be looking at the church in the ancient city of Sardis from Revelation chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that thou art ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Today, for a few minutes, I'd like to speak to this subject, wake-up call, a spiritual wake-up call. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for the songs that we've sung today, the services that we've had. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in a powerful way right here in this moment. God, we're thankful that when we need instruction and guidance in life, that we don't have to simply just look within or look out in the world or the culture, but that we can look to your word and your Holy Spirit will illuminate the text for us. And so, God, I pray that that is exactly what would take place in the next few minutes. Lord, I pray that we would understand what it is that we're reading. Lord, we know that the Scripture says that the natural man receiveth not the things of God. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be those today that would even come to know you as their Savior. And, Lord, I pray that we can have a better understanding of this text and how it applies to our lives. And we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... How many of you really enjoy your sleep? Can I see your hands? You really enjoy your sleep. How many of you would even say that you need your sleep? Anybody like that in that category? I remember when I was in college, I was struggling to uh, get sleep. Uh, I was playing on the basketball team, and we had practice every night from 9 till 11 o'clock at night, and then we would have uh, 7.30 a.m. classes, and so I was constantly trying to find time to sleep and constantly going through uh, classes, being tired and exhausted, and I remember one particular night, my brother, who is a youth pastor, uh, he asked me for a ride, and he was hosting an event at Disneyland with uh, their youth group, and he said, would you be able to come down and pick me up after the event is over? And so I said, sure, and I went down, and I picked him up, and it was about midnight, And both of us were very tired and exhausted. And I remember driving back to Lancaster from uh, Disneyland, and both uh, my brother and I were both very tired, and I started to kind of 
doze off just for a second. And how many of you have ever been driving and you've been very tired and you've just tried every trick in the book to try to stay awake? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like we were listening to the music as loud as we could. We had our windows rolled down. Uh, we were just kind of screaming, pinching ourselves, doing whatever we could to stay awake. But uh, we were trying our best. And I remember I was driving and I just started to kind of drift off a little bit. And I veered into the wrong lane and I went to the next lane. Thankfully, there wasn't a lot of cars on the freeway that late at night. And I drifted over until thankfully I hit that little rumble strip in the side of the road. How many of you know what I'm talking about? The rumble strip, that those little divots. And I hit that and it kind of scared me half to death. It woke me up and, uh, and uh, my brother yelled at me and I was back to 10 and 2 and thank the Lord we made it back to Lancaster safely. Uh, but I was very thankful for that, that rumble strip. Uh, today when we come to Revelation chapter 3 and when we read the verses that we just read, what I want us to recognize today is Revelation chapter 3 is a rumble strip for the church that Jesus writes this letter to get the church's attention to wake up the church that Jesus describes as a dead church. So often in life, we can just simply go through the motions and we're not actually paying attention. Uh, Duke University, several years ago, they did a study on habits and they said that 40% of what we do on a daily basis is habitual by nature. And so 40% of what we do, we're just on autopilot. We're not even thinking. We're just uh, caring about our daily business. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in a place in life and in a season of life when we are sleeping at the wheel spiritually. And so Jesus writes to this church and he says, I want you to wake up. I'm trying to get your attention. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 13, verse number 11, and that knowing the time, that now it is the high time to awake out of sleep. And so all throughout scripture, we see this theme that uh, we are to uh, pinch ourselves every once in a while and set a spiritual alarm clock to make sure that we are paying attention to the things that Jesus wants us to pay attention to. Now we come to uh, this church in Sardis that was located in this ancient city of Sardis. And Sardis was a very fascinating city. Uh, Sardis was the capital city of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And if you've been following along in our journey of the seven letters, and uh, you've been kind of wondering uh, where they are on a map, I think we have a map this morning. If you were kind of picturing what route the mailman would have taken to deliver these letters, uh, we start in Ephesus. And Ephesus was the church that left their first love. Then we went to Smyrna. Smyrna was the persecuted church, the suffering church. Then we went to Pergamos. Pergamos was the church that uh, compromised and mixed in with the world. Last week, we saw Thyatira. They were the tolerant church. They were practicing tolerance, and they were tolerating the sexual immorality of that woman Jezebel. And now we arrive in Sardis. And Sardis was a fascinating city. Uh, Sardis was at one time the home of Aesop from Aesop's fables. And so stories like the boy that cried wolf and the tortoise and the hare uh, from Aesop, and he spent some time uh, here in Sardis. At one point, Sardis was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. In fact, there was a king in Sardis in the sixth century BC, and his name was King Croesus. And many historians talk about his wealth. Herodotus and Plutarch, these Greek historians, they talk about the massive wealth that was accumulated uh, by uh, King Croesus. In fact, even Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, talked about the wealth of King uh, Croesus from Sardis. And so this was an extremely wealthy city at one point. In fact, gold and silver were first ever in history minted in Sardis. And so this was a very powerful and prominent city at one time. But by the time we get to uh, Revelation chapter number three, Sardis is simply a shell of its old self. 
They are no longer this powerful nation through a series of different attacks and through a series of different events. Uh, Sardis is now no longer on top. They are reminiscent of those glory days, but now they're really just kind of a shell of their old selves. And I think one of the most interesting features, are you still with me today? One of the most interesting features of Sardis uh, was that they were known for their necropolis. Now, many cities had a necropolis, but they were known for their necropolis, which was a cemetery. And this was a massive cemetery. In fact, there's been excavations done uh, in the last hundred years where we've, we've seen the excavations of this necropolis in Sardis. And it was a massive cemetery that you could see uh, for miles and miles away. And so Sardis was famous for its cemetery, which I find fascinating because when Jesus writes the letter to the church in Sardis, you know what he says? He says, you, the church, are just like that cemetery. You're lifeless. In verse number one, he says, you have a name that thou livest and art dead. And so Jesus is writing to this church, and this would have been a shocking diagnosis for them to hear, uh, that they were going through the motions spiritually, that they were carrying their Bibles to church, and they were singing the songs, and they had a smile on their face, and they had all of the outward manifestations of life. But Jesus says, on the inside, you are dead. This was an autopsy of a dead Church, you, you want to know something fascinating about Sardis and the church specifically in, Chardis, uh, in Sardis is that they had no um, external problems from the culture. They had no problems, which is unique for the, all these churches that we're studying in the book of Revelation because Ephesus, they had a problem. They left their first love. And Smyrna, they certainly had a problem. They were suffering. And Thyatira and Pergamos, they had a problem. They were getting mixed in with the world. But Sardis had no problems. And that in and of itself was the problem. Because as one author says, Sardis, the church in Sardis, was an inoffensive church. One author, Daniel Aiken, he puts it this way. He says this about uh, this church in Sardis. He says, their faith was not radical. It was almost invisible. The lost among them whom they lived, they worked and they prayed and they saw uh, nothing different or unique about them. The culture did not oppose them. It simply ignored them as of no real consequence or significance. They were so weak in their confession of Christ that they bothered no one. And so this was the church in Sardis. They didn't want to step on anybody's toes. They didn't want to be too loud. They, uh, they didn't want to kind of make a scene. And so as a result, they were an inconsequential church. The culture looked at them and said, why would I want what they have? It doesn't mean anything to me. And so the fact that they had no problems was the problem. It's like what the old preacher said one time. He said, if you haven't had a head-on collision with the devil in a while, you might be heading in the same direction. And this is what was taking place in Sardis, that they were just kind of going along uh, to get along, and uh, Jesus has, uh, has an issue with this church. The Bible says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 5, having a form of godliness. Everybody say, a form of godliness. A form of godliness, the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. This was a picture of the church located in Sardis. Now, I believe that this is important for us today for many reasons, but I want you to know that there is a predictable cycle in the lifespan of every church. Every church typically starts with a mission. That mission to reach people with the gospel, to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus. A church starts with a mission. That mission is compelling. It's contagious. And so that mission then becomes a movement. And people want to join that movement, and they want to be a part of that movement. And so the mission becomes a movement. But then after a while, things get mechanical, things get stale, and so that movement then becomes a machine. And then it's not too long when the church becomes a machine, and we're just kind of going through the mechanical motions, that that machine eventually becomes simply a monument. Or in the case of Sardis, 
mortuary. And this is what I believe today with all my heart. It is my prayer that Rock Hill Church, and I hope it's your prayer as well, it's my prayer that Rock Hill Church would never become a monument in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years, that it wouldn't just be a monument, that, but that we would stay faithful to the mission that God has given us, and that mission is to reach people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And that mission would compel us to be a part of a movement, something that is bigger and greater than just ourselves. It's something that will matter in all of eternity. And so today, as we look at this church that Jesus diagnoses as dead, I believe that we ought to take a look within. What I'd like to do as we look to this letter today is I'd like, to, I like, I'd like us to see three signs or indications that we need a spiritual wake-up call. Would that be okay with everybody today? Three signs or indications that we need a wake-up call. Number one is this, if you want to take notes today. The first indication is this, when your primary concern is reputation. Now, let's notice verse number one. And I want to encourage you, today is going to be a very real Bible study sermon, okay? And what I mean by that is we're going to uh, look to these verses often. We're going to kind of unpack something, and we'll look back at it, and we'll uh, continue to do that. And so notice verse number one. If you're with me, would you say Amen. Verse number one, and unto the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church, the local church there, unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. So we have to pause for a second and say, what does this mean, the seven spirits of God? I believe that Jesus is making a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. There was a Hebrew idiom that talked about the sevenfold spirit of God and the different things that the spirit of God represented. And so I believe this is an idiom referencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which is impactful because Jesus is writing, remember, to a church that he diagnoses as dead. And what he says is this, what you need is an infusion of the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. Can I just tell you today that the church today uh, does not need more systems and structures and programs and different things just to occupy people, to keep us busy. What we need more than anything today in 2023 at Rock Hill Church is an infusion of the Holy Spirit of God. The prophet said it's not by might, it's not by power, but it is by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Does anybody believe today in the power of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God? Jesus says, I'm writing to you uh, with the, the sevenfold spirit of God. You need an infusion of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer said this, it is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. Where the only attraction is God. What we need in the church today is not more entertainment. I'll say that again. What we need in the church today is not more entertainment. Because if you're looking for entertainment, you can find it any which direction you look today. Look down, you see it on your phone. Uh, look around, you see it in culture. Uh, what we need is not more entertainment. What we need is a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit uh, will lead us and guide us and direct us in the place that we must go. And so Jesus says, I'm riding to you with the sevenfold Spirit of God. And then in verse number one, he says this, and the seven stars. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. So who is he talking about here? The seven stars. Well, if you remember back in chapter 1, in verse number 20, he says that the stars are the angels of the churches. And the angels or the messengers of the churches would be speaking of church leadership. And so what Jesus is saying is ultimately, he's reminding them that he is the head of the church. Uh, that, that he has control even of the leadership of the church. That it's his church. Uh, and that he is in control of it. Now, notice verse number 1 one more time. 
the seven stars. I know thy works. Okay, I know thy works. And so he knows the busyness and the activities of the church. And he says, I know what you're doing. Now, Sardis, make no mistake about it. They were not a church that was just kind of sitting on the sidelines doing nothing. They were an active church. They were a busy church. In fact, uh, there has been excavations done of the synagogue that was found in Sardis. And historians tell us that it was the largest synagogue in the ancient world. It could hold a thousand people. And so this was a large church. It was a happening church. Uh, They knew all about how to keep their schedules busy within the church. In fact, uh, Vance Habner, he said this, we are not to get the impression that Sardis was a defunct affair with the building a wreck, the members scattered, the pastor ready to resign. It was a busy church with meetings every night, committees galore, wheels within wheels, promotion and publicity, something going on all the time. It had a reputation of being alive, wide awake, going concerned. And so they had this reputation of being a busy, active church. But notice what Jesus says one more time at the very end of verse number one. Are you with me today? He says at the end of verse number one, thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. This is what Jesus says. You have a good reputation. When people hear your name, Sardis, oh, that church is happening. The church at Sardis had a name that they were alive. They had the right reputation. They had the right credentials. But please hear me today. Jesus is not interested in your credentials. He's interested in your character. Your reputation is what other people think about you. Your character is who you really are. And often we are more concerned with our reputation than we are with reality. We are concerned with our reputation. What do people think about me? Do people like me? Do people respect me? Do people think that I'm intelligent? Uh, what, what do people think about me? We are so concerned with optics in the church and, and how people perceive ourselves. I'll prove it to you. And uh, uh, this is something that we're all familiar with. If you've ever taken a group photo, how many of you have ever taken a group photo? All right. You take a group photo and somebody says, hey, can I see that photo? What do we all do when we see that photo? We look right at ourselves. We'll zoom in on ourselves. I want to make sure that my eyes are open, that my smile looks good. And we don't, look at, we don't care what anybody else looks like in that photo. They could all have their eyes closed. But if you look good, you're like, hey, perfect. That's a great photo. Can you send me that? We look at our, ourselves. And we live in this culture where we are very self-absorbed and consumed and saturated with me, number one, and self. And we are so concerned with optics and how will people see me? And I want to make sure that I'm uh, positioned in the right light. You know, there's a man in the New Testament named Diotrephes. How many of you have ever heard of Diotrephes? All right. Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say about this man named Diotrephes in 3 John chapter 1, verse number 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, watch this little phrase who loveth to have the preeminence among them. Is not that indicative of many people serving the Lord today? The Diotrephes syndrome. I love to have the preeminence among them. I want to make sure that I'm in the spotlight. I want to make sure that people see me. I want to make sure that people recognize me. I want to make sure that people affirm me. And I want to make sure that people approve of me. But I want you to know today that if your primary concern is what people think about you, and your primary concern is reputation, you might need a spiritual wake-up call. Because it's not about reputation only. It's about reality and our character. And so they had a name that they were alive, but Jesus says, thou art dead. Now, this leads us to the second sign, the second indication that you might need a spiritual wake-up call. Number two is this. When you lack a sense of urgency. Notice verse number two. He says, be watchful. Now, that's another way of saying, wake up. In fact, everybody just kind of give your neighbor a good nudge and say, wake up. 
Very good. Some of you actually were just awakened. I remember several years ago, actually several, several months ago, not several years ago, uh, several months ago, Katie and I were uh, at the airport, and we were waiting for our flight, and we were without kids, and we knew that our flight was delayed, and so we were bummed about that because we had a connection flight, and we wanted to make sure that we were going to get that connecting flight, and so I told Katie when we were on this plane, we're going to land, and we have to just run uh, to that next terminal, and it's, it's like a mile away at this airport, and I said, we're going to have to really run to get there, and um, and so we landed uh, that plane, and we had just a few minutes, and we took off, and I started running as fast as I could, and I was just kind of pretending like I was on the amazing race because I've always wanted to be on the amazing race, and so I was running as fast as I could, and uh, I'm like, I was born for this. I was sprinting to that gate, and I looked behind me, and I could not find Katie anywhere, and I was like, man, this is a real conundrum now. Like, what do I do if I get there? Should I get on the plane and just hope for the best, or you know, what should I do? And so I was running as fast as I could. I had no, no idea where Katie was, and I was running. And I was out of breath, and I kind of stopped for a second, and I put my hands on my knees. And in that moment, I heard one of those airport golf carts. It was saying, beep, beep, get out of the way, get out of the way. And I look over my shoulder, and here's Katie just sitting on that golf cart, just whizzing right by me. She's like waving at me. She was working smarter, not harder. And, and I was like, oh, great. And so I had to start catching up, and I finally caught up to the golf cart. We went to the gate, and we were four minutes late, and we missed our flight. All that to no avail. But one thing is for certain, that in that moment, we had a sense of urgency, uh, that we weren't trying to waste time, that we knew that we had a gate, we knew we had a mission, a place to be, and we weren't wasting any time, we were going to get there. Can I ask you today, why is it that when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that often our ministry is not characterized by haste, but rather slothfulness? Rather than our lives being characterized by urgency, they are characterized by complacency. Well, if I can make it, then I'll make it. And if I can't, then I can. And, you know, um, and so often there's just lacking in our lives a sense of urgency. And this is what was happening in Sardis. They were just kind of going through the motions, but nothing was really a big deal. Nothing was really uh, anything that required haste. And so Jesus tells them, he says, be watchful. He says, wake up. By the way, if anyone knew the danger of sleeping on the job and the disastrous effects that that, uh, would, uh, that that would take place because of that, it was the city of Sardis. History tells us that two times, on two separate occasions, the city of Sardis was attacked and seized. Now, the city of Sardis sat on this 1,500-foot plateau. It really only had one road in and one road out. And on all the other sides of the plateau, there was uh, cliffs and so uh, edges. And so uh, it was very difficult to attack the city of Sardis. It was nearly impenetrable for the invading armies. But two different times, uh, invading armies were successful in attacking Sardis. And both times, you can look it up historically, we know this to be true, both times they were seized, it was because the guards fell asleep. On two separate occasions, the guards thought no one's going to attack. They fell asleep, and they came, and they took over the city of Sardis. And so if anyone knew the danger of sleeping on the job, it was the city of Sardis. And Jesus is now telling the church, you're doing the exact same thing. And he says, you need to wake up. You need to pay attention. You need to see what uh, the culture is doing around you. Hey, there are some parents that need to wake up to see what's happening in the culture today. There are some followers of Jesus that need to wake up and see what's happening in the world today. We need to wake up and see what God is doing in the church. We need to realize what's happening around us and within us. And so he says, wake up. And then he says this. He says, strengthen the things that remain. Verse number three. Uh, strengthen the things that remain. I want you to see it. In verse two. And strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. Now, that's an interesting phrase. 
He says that there are some things in your life that are on the verge of extinction. There are some spiritual qualities that are good things that are about to die. What does Jesus say to do? Strengthen them. Don't give up on them. I wonder what it would be in your life today. Maybe it's your walk with God. Maybe it's you've been reading your Bible at the beginning of the year and now it's kind of on the verge of extinction. Maybe it's a relationship that you're giving up on. Maybe it's a heart to serve in the local church, but there's something in your life, there's some good spiritual quality that's on the verge of extinction. And Jesus would say this, whatever it is, identify it and resurrect it. Strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. Because he says, I have not found thy works, at the end of verse two, I have not found thy works perfect or complete before God. You know what very simply Jesus is saying? He's saying there's still work that needs to be done. Can I tell you today at the 1130 service in Rock Hill Church that there is still much work that needs to be done for the glory of Jesus Christ? There are still people in the Inland Empire that need to know about Jesus. There are still children that need to know how much God loves them. There are still teenagers that need to know that there is a purpose for their lives and they can live uh, for something greater than themselves and something beyond themselves. There are still marriages in the Inland Empire that need to be restored by the hope and the power of the gospel. There are still missionaries from our church that need to be sent around the world to preach the good news of the gospel around the globe. Can I tell you today, there is still work that needs to be done. There is still a job to do. We don't have time to just sit on our hands and say, we'll see what happens. Uh, James said, what is your life? It's a vapor. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. We have to realize that we are strangers and pilgrims. We are just passing through. And so often we are caught up in temporary, trivial pursuits that do not matter in eternity. And we have to recognize today that we have to have a sense of urgency when it comes to the things of God. We have to have a sense of urgency when it comes to doing the things that God has called us to do. And this leads us to our third and final thought today. Number one was when you care primarily about reputation. Number two is when you have no sense of urgency. And here's a third thought. When you give little thought to sanctification. Here's a sign that you need a spiritual wake-up call. When you give little thought to sanctification. Now you say, well, what is sanctification? You need a quick refresher. The moment that you accepted Jesus Christ, if you're saved today, if you've invited Jesus Christ into your life, in that moment, the Bible says that you were justified. That's a biblical word, it's a theological word, but it's a beautiful word, justified. The word justified means this, just as if I'd never sinned. Some people say, just as if I'd never been a sinner. So the moment that you accept Christ, you were justified, you were declared righteous, you were declared holy before a holy God, you were justified. But while we're still here on this earth, we still battle sin. Can anybody relate to that? We still battle our flesh. And that process of becoming more and more like Jesus, that process of walking in holiness, is called sanctification. The word sanctification simply means set apart. That we're set apart for a specific purpose. That we're not to be, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're distinct. And so Jesus is going to talk here in these concluding verses about sanctification. Notice verse number three. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. And so again, he says, you don't know what tomorrow holds, so live with a sense of urgency. And then starting in verse four, he's gonna talk about this subject of sanctification. Again, the, the, the process of becoming more like Christ, the process of walking in holiness. He says, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. 
Jesus speaks to two categories of people and we'll be done today. First, he speaks to the remnant. He says to the few in Sardis. There's a few names, even in Sardis, that have not defiled themselves. Jesus saying the implication was most of the people in the church at Sardis were living a life of sin and wickedness and doing whatever they wanted. But Jesus says there are a few of you that are not doing that. There are a few of you that are striving to walk in holiness. Can I tell you today, never underestimate what God can do with a few. He says, there's a few, even in Sardis, that have not defiled themselves. Hey, when everyone else in the culture is doing one thing, there are a few that remain faithful. Jesus can take a few loaves and fishes and feed upwards of 20,000 people. Jesus can take a few disciples and he can turn the world upside down. Never underestimate what God can do with a few. Can I just remind you that little is much when God is in it. That God does not measure things how we measure things. And so he says, there are a few in Sardis that have not defiled themselves. Now he's talking here and he's giving this, he's giving this vivid picture. Everybody still with me today? He gives this vivid picture of defiling a garment. And I was thinking about that. The best way that I can illustrate this for us today, because Jesus is trying to get our attention, is I remember when our kids were younger, when I would change some diapers. I didn't change diapers that often, thankfully. Um, Katie was very great at that, but I tried to do my best. And I haven't changed a diaper in a while, but I remember that when I would change diapers early on, sometimes I would do it wrong. And Daniel's a new dad. Daniel, have you ever changed a diaper wrong? It's a tragic thing when that happens. Those little straps on the side can be tricky. If they don't attach themselves all the way, and then there's a blowout, that diaper just kind of surrenders, right? Like it's over. And what happens is after that diaper surrenders is things just kind of seep everywhere. And that little onesie that was so clean and cute is not so clean and cute anymore, right? It'll just kind of seep everywhere. I hope now you have an image in your mind of a soiled garment, okay? Jesus is telling the church in Sardis, you have sin seeping everywhere. You've soiled your garments. But then he says this, there are a few in Sardis that have not defiled their garments. And then he says this, they walk with me in white. for They are worthy. White, the color white is a picture of purity. Just like when a bride on her wedding day will wear a white dress, it's signifying celebration and purity. And Jesus says, there are a few in Sardis that are walking with me in white. That are, they're not perfect, but they're, they're striving towards holiness. They're trying to stay separate from the world. They're not adopting the philosophies of the world. They're walking with me in white. And I read that this week, and it was so encouraging to me, this little phrase in that verse where Jesus says, they, they walk with me. They walk with me. Because to walk with someone speaks of conversation and intimacy. When you're walking with someone, you're close to them. And so sometimes we have this negative connotation and this negative picture of sanctification that, man, if I'm going to be serious about purity and I'm going to be serious about holiness, then I'm not going to have any fun and uh, it's just going to be a miserable life and that uh, God's just trying to keep me from enjoying myself. But can I tell you today that sanctification is not a punishment to be endured. Sanctification is a path to be enjoyed, that, that we can walk with God that we can have close intimacy with him. And maybe today you're here and you feel as though you are distant from God. Maybe it's been a while since you've been to church. I'm so grateful that you're here today. Maybe you've been coming to church every single week the last year and you feel distant from God. 
Maybe you feel like, man, I've been trying to pray and talk to God, but it just feels like and seems like my prayers aren't really getting anywhere. I've been trying to read the Bible, and I don't know what I'm reading, and it's discouraging, and I just feel distant from God. Can I tell you today that the Bible says that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And often the reason we feel distant from God is like what the psalmist said, that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so if there's some sort of unconfessed sin in our lives and this barrier that's uh, 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 distracting our relationship with Jesus, can I tell you that the Bible says that, that if you confess your sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I tell you today that you can walk with Jesus, that you can have a close, intimate, personal relationship with the God of the universe that loves you more than you could ever imagine. You can walk with him. He says, don't think of sanctification as a punishment. It's an invitation to intimacy. You can walk with me in white. And so he speaks to the remnant, but then he speaks to the repentant. I want you to see it in verse five. He says, he that overcometh. Can I tell you today that if you have some sort of sin that is habitual, if you have some sort of besetting sin and you've tried to get victory, you've tried to make it right, and it just seems like you cannot get victory, can I tell you today through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, you can get victory. You can overcome you can turn from your sin, you can repent, you can overcome, not in your own strength, but through the power of God. I just want you to know, you are no match for your sin. Sin is powerful and it is strong. You are no match for sin, but your sin is no match for the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, you can overcome. The same shall be clothed in white raiment. You too can walk in purity. You can walk in holiness. By the way, can I just say real quick that our culture today does not value purity. Purity is a laughable concept today. But sometimes you have to choose between what is pure and what is popular. We're going to go with the flow or we're going to listen to what God has to say. Then he says this, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse six, and he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. I I think that uh, this is the way that Jesus ends every letter. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear. I think it's so appropriate for the church at Sardis. Because he starts the letter by saying, wake up. And he closes the letter by saying, are you listening? He's trying to get our attention today. But I love in verse number five, he says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. And I just want to close with this thought. If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again, and you have accepted him as your savior, the Bible says that you are saved, you're declared righteous. And in that moment, your name is written in what's called the book of life. And this is a wonderful reality. That means that your name is registered in heaven, that there's a record of your name in heaven. Seth Christian Brown, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Bible says that this is something that we should rejoice over. Luke chapter 10, verse number 20. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. So, so don't be so infatuated and impressed with this gift that I've given you. Sometimes we are more impressed with the gift than we are the giver. He says, don't rejoice that you have this ability that I've given to you, this authority. That's not what you should celebrate. What should we celebrate? But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. We can rejoice in the fact that we have a home in heaven, that our names are written down in heaven. I'm thankful that today already in the first and second service, many people responded and gave their lives to Christ and there are new names written down in glory today. 
And we can celebrate that. We can rejoice with that. But as we close today, just a simple personal question. One of the most important questions you will ever answer. Is your name written in the book of life? Have you had a time when you prayed and received Jesus Christ as your savior and that decision was recorded in heaven? Because if you don't know that, if you're wondering, man, I don't know if I'm going to heaven, if I'm going to hell, I'm not really sure. It's not about religion. You're like, man, I'm just, I'm not sure about this. Well, here's what we need to know and we'll be done. Everybody with me still? Jesus was writing to the church at Sardis. They were the dead church. They were dead, right? Well, here's what we need to know about all of us, something we all share in common today, is that before Christ, the Bible describes what our life was like. And you know what the Bible says? We were dead in our sins. Now, this is an important distinction because many people say, well, I was just kind of sick. I was kind of sleeping. I wasn't that bad. I didn't do what they're doing over there. No, apart from Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Lifeless, no vitality, no pulse. <clears throat> the Bible describes it this way and we'll be done today. Ephesians chapter two, verse number one. And you hath he quickened. The word quickened is an old English word meaning to make alive. He says, and you hath he made alive who were, what is it? Dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to talk about life apart from Christ. Now, this is important because maybe you can resonate with some of these verses. Apart from Christ, before Christ, this is what your life was like. Notice what he says. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. Just lived how the culture around you lived. Same value system, same ideologies, same philosophies. According to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh of the mind. That's what our lives were like. We just kind of did whatever our flesh desired. Hey, if that feels good, I'll do it. If it looks good, I'll look at it. We just, whatever, if it's pleasurable, I'm gonna pursue it. Living according to the desires of our flesh. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God. <laughs> anyway, thankful for those two words today. <laughs> that was our life. Apart from Christ, we were dead. There's no hope, but God, who is rich in mercy. The citizens of Sardis knew all about historically wealth, physically. But Jesus here wants them to see that he is rich spiritually, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Something you need to know today is this. And if you don't hear anything else, please listen to this. The message of the gospel is a message of love and that God loves you more than you could ever comprehend in your life. That his love for us is an illogical love, that he loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. The Bible says in Romans that his love, nothing can separate us from his love. No height, nor depth, nor principality, nor power. Hey, can I tell you today that the love of God is insurmountable? He loves us with an everlasting love, a great love. Then he says this, even when we were dead in our sins. Now, you have to recognize this. He didn't just love you when you were doing good. It's not like he just loves you today because you waltzed into a church. He loved you even when you were dead in your sins. The Bible says, but God commended his love toward us 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were even in the very act of sin, the worst thing that you have ever done in your life, the worst thing that you will ever do in your life, even when you were in the very act of sin, Christ died for you. He loves you with that kind of love that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to live a perfectly sinless life, and he went to the cross, and he died in your place. He paid the price that you and I could never pay. And aren't you thankful that he didn't stay dead? And this is what we believe with everything that's within us. It's what we sang about today, that Jesus Christ, three days later, he bodily arose from the grave, that Jesus Christ is alive and well today. And if Jesus Christ is not alive and well today, I would echo the words of the Apostle Paul that says that we are of all men most miserable. If Jesus isn't alive, we're just wasting time. But if Jesus is alive, there ought to be a sense of urgency. We ought to not just kind of go through the motions. Jesus rose again from the grave. And then it says this in Ephesians 2 verse 5. Even when we were dead in our sins, he quickened us. Again, he made us alive together with Christ. Here it is. By grace, you are saved. Saved from what? Saved from our sins, saved from the penalty and the power of sin, saved from a terrible place called hell. How are we saved? Did you see it in that verse? By grace. What is grace? It's undeserved favor. We don't earn it. We don't achieve it. Uh, This isn't about religion. This isn't about uh, trying to be the best version of yourself. No. We were dead in our sins. But by grace, we can be saved. All we have to do is invite Jesus Christ into our lives. The Bible says it in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we're not saved by our works. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It's according to his mercy that he saves us. And so today as we close, I'd like to give anyone an opportunity today to respond to that and to invite Jesus Christ into their lives. And if you are saved today, if you are a Christian today, let's make sure that we're not just going through the motions, but that we're living with a sense of urgency, living according to the mission that God has given us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.